Hey, wait a minute. We're lost. Oh, shit, David. What is that? I don't know. Come on. Come on, where? Anywhere. I think we should just keep moving. Circling us. Ah, oh, fuck. What's the plan? Plan? Let's just keep walking. Let's ride a lovely stroll on the moors. Tra la 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 la. Isn't this fun? <laughs> it's in front of us. You think it's a dog? Oh, shit. What is it? Yeah. It's a sheepdog or something. Come on, turn slowly. Let's walk away. Nice doggy. Good boy. Come on, Jack. Walk away. Walking away. Yes, here we are. Walking away. Do you see anything? No. Sounds far away. Not far enough. Come on. Jack. What? Where are we going? I don't know. I'll tell you when we get there. Okay, because... Oh! Oh! You really scared me, you shithead. You couldn't help me up or what? We all go a little mad sometimes. Beware the moon, baby. Good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Thrill me. Salutations, kids and heroes, as we welcome everyone to another season of the Horathon edition of the Film Effect Podcast, giving you full effect deep dives for the Film Effect Archive. On this special episode, we're taking a ride back to 1981, when slasher films and holiday horror were all the rage. Meanwhile, the film we're breaking down today was changing the entire game of the subgenre of werewolf films. Transformations never look so horrifically beautiful until this little movie came around, and with that, I'm Ed. And this is Stu. And this is an American Werewolf in London. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Yeah? A coyote. There aren't any coyotes in England. I'm sorry I'm upsetting you, David, but you don't understand what's going on. I understand, all right. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. 
Yes. That's right. David, stop! I'm going to the police. Jack was right. Jack is dead! Yeah, Jack is dead and six people are dead. There's going to be a full moon tonight. I'm going to the cops. Oh, be serious, would you? Oh! You can't let them go. Should the world know our business? It's murder, then. Then murder it is. Excuse me. I'm a werewolf. A werewolf? Naked American men stole my balloons. What? It's not Jack! Right, Let me through! Don't just hold Let me An American werewolf in London, two American college students on a walking tour of Britain are attacked by a werewolf that none of the locals will admit exists. So there's literally so much that can be said about werewolf in London, and I'm sure we're going to be saying everything there is to be said in this episode. But first, we have another special guest for this episode. Joining me this year is uh, to talk about John Landis' horror comedy classic. We got Stu from the Stu World Order podcast. What's going on, buddy? How you doing? I am doing well. How are you tonight, sir? I can't complain. A little rushed, but, uh, you know, nothing I'm not <laughs> used to. Yeah, I know how that goes. No, I'm having a, a, a relatively good day. So, yeah, nothing nothing major going on here. Just I watched this last night. You watched this tonight. We're getting ready to talk about it. I'm excited. It's a it's a movie I wanted a reason to rewatch anyway. Yeah, same here. It, it had been a few years since I watched it. Um, as a matter of fact, this gave me an opportunity to uh, crack open my 4K copy from Arrow that I've been sitting on for the last... When did that come out? Sometime last year, I want to say. It's one of the films I picked up and just didn't really get get around to watching, but because I, I previously owned it on Blu-ray, and uh, it, it's probably been... I want to say the last time I watched this film was during the pandemic. so about three or four years ago. But um, it's not a movie I watch too often, but damn it. it I, I, have a, I have a blast watching this every time. It's, a, it's such an easy watch. Um... A lot to talk about, so let's uh, kick off our breakdown with the first time viewings. Oh my goodness, I remember the first time I saw that picture. I thought it was just wonderful. So for me, this was a 90s rental. I remember watching this with my 
childhood friend Corey, who's actually one of our co-hosts on the podcast. And when I first watched this, I remember not getting it. And I don't know. I, we, we didn't, I don't think we realized how much it was supposed to be a comedy. And even to this day, John, the funny thing is, John Landis will swear up and down this is a horror movie. You cannot convince me otherwise. This is a horror comedy through and through. There's so many comedic elements to match the horror elements in this movie. I mean, I think it's a horror film. At it's it's overall it's a horror film, but you can't deny the comedic elements in this movie. I mean, it's there's a lot through a lot just thrown at you, and I think I didn't understand that what that was supposed to be and i just thought you know it, it, it didn't it didn't really mesh with me when i first saw this because i want to say this was like the mid 90s so i was about 11 12 years old and yeah it took me a while to get back into it i i didn't watch it again for about i don't know probably another decade but then i was I, you know I, I was older and you know mentally with when it, when it came to film i was a lot more open so I became a fan at an older age, just not that first time. How about you, though? What was your first time like? So my first time watching this was relatively recently. Once okay. COVID started, I had kind of made it my mission to go back through and fill in a bunch of my movie blind spots, especially in regards to older classic horror that I'd never seen. So I have only seen American Werewolf in London for the first time since the pandemic started. So we're talking probably... Mm early to mid 2021 is whenever I watched American werewolf in London. So that was my first experience. And as with most of the classic horror movies that I've watched, um, I was surprised how well it held up because I, I go into a lot of things and I don't mean to, I don't intend to, but I go right. into a lot of things that are considered classics with this mindset of, well, it's classic, but does that mean it's good? Or is it just something that was moderately good that came out whenever we had a lower selection of things to watch? But uh, no, I came out of American Werewolf in London the first time I watched it. Very impressed, very excited about it. And so, yeah, I don't know how much could have changed in the last two years, but we'll talk about that. But yeah, I, it's only been two or yeah around two years since i've seen it for the first time it was mm -hmm. one of those many blind spots i had to fill in yeah i know that's like nothing wrong with that so all right well let's talk numbers in the form of box office receipts get receipts so the film got a release on august 21st 1981 from universal pictures it opened up across 870 screens coming in first place opening weekend grossing 3.7 million dollars Overall, worldwide, this film has made $61.9 million against a $5.8 million budget. So, yeah, it's definitely, it's made an impressive amount of money. Now, I'm sure that this number I grabbed off this site came from all the re-releases and stuff, because I know a lot of films like this came out numerous times over the last, how many, like four decades it's been in release. But it's still impressive nonetheless, I mean, nonetheless, because they got... Not only that, there's also home video takeaways, you know, because this movie was booming on VHS, at least, and DVD, and, and so on and so forth. It continues to make money today, so. Um, so before we actually talk about the film itself, let's do our pre-dive top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash. 
in the clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white light, white heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation. So for this episode, we're going to do favorite 1981 horror movies because like i said at the top of the episode 1981 horror was all the rage you couldn't escape the holiday themed horror movies or the slashers like it's i think we talked about this in our upcoming halloween mega uh, megapod about 81 being just an insane year for horror movies and especially slashers and uh and holiday themed horror movies not that this is one of those two but this is still a horror film released in between all those movies, you know. Yeah, it's a horror movie released in 1981 that made a ton of money against its budget. I know this movie would end up getting a sequel like more than 10 years later, but it feels like it's amazing to me that this didn't become a huge franchise of diminishing returns like a lot of the movies in the 80s did. Like, you had like three Maniac Cop movies, and you can't tell me that movie made anywhere near as much money as American Werewolf in London. I wonder if John Landis pretty much just stepped in and said like, no, you're not taking this property of mine and bastardizing it across a a whole franchise of four or five movies but yeah it's amazing to me that it didn't happen just because like in the span of nine years we got eight friday the 13th movies we got several (laughs) halloween movies in the 80s and yet nope just this one american werewolf in london that was a big financial success it's funny you mention that too because um a film that this is probably compared the most to the howling Garnish like seven or eight nonsense sequels, you know. Yes, yes. So before we get into the, my actual number five, I have a handful of honorable mentions, of course, because you just can't pick five out of the number of horror films that came out this year. So I'm just gonna go down my list in, in, in no particular order. Like I said, they just they're just outside the top five. Uh, the Funhouse, Toby Hooper, underrated classic in my opinion. Halloween two, The Pit, The Prowler, The Burning, a lot of those. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. This is a film that was made for TV that I swear by. It stars Larry Drake, the late, great Larry Drake, Dr. Giggles, um, Charles Durning, and uh, there's a bunch of other character actors, like uh, the mayor from the original Red Dawn, who's in a bunch of other films, pops up in the movie as well. But it's called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Um, Basically, in a gist, um, Larry Drake's character is kind of like the... the town bumbling idiot he's kind of got mental issues and they this town these like big wigs of the town led by charles durning like kill him by accident and then he comes back in the form of a scarecrow sounds goofy but it's 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 a film that still to this day creeps me out so that had to be on my list and then of course you can't talk 81 in heart without acknowledging at least the evil dead So, those are my honorable mentions. Number five, though, for me, is a film called Possession with Sam Neill. I I just recently got into this film. Uh, One of my close friends, Brian, actually bought this big limited edition Mondo Blu-ray set for me for Christmas like four or five years ago. And I'd never even heard of the movie. And I finally sat down and watched it one night, and it blew me away how different and bizarre it was. Like, totally unpredictable 
you think it goes one way and it goes a complete different direction. Um, of course, Sam Neill also helps, but it's a really wild, bizarre, kind of erotica, but not so much. Uh, it's it's definitely focused on the horror element, but it's called Possession. Like I said, 81 horror. Um, great film. If you haven't heard of it, check it out. So I've heard of Possession. I've never had a chance to see it yet. I'll have to see. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere on Tubi or Freebie. It was just on I'll Shutter. Have to check that I know that it was. They oh, made a big okay. deal about it being on like streaming for the first time in in for, like, I think it was first time period. But it's a movie that. Oh wow! No, I had never even heard about it. But then after I got this surprise box set, I want to say about a year or two after that within the last few years it's all of a sudden people were just talking about this movie like it's had like this like sudden cult you know status that i'm not knocking it one bit i'm, I'm happy but it's kind of came out of nowhere it was just random that's all <coughs> so how about you what's your honorable mentions if you have any or your number five i'll just jump straight into my number cool, five cool. here and i have this will be the lowest budget probably the i don't know most obtuse movie on my list then we'll start getting into some more of the classics but i watched this this was another movie i watched for the first time since covid <laughs> happened it was a, a cult classic from 1981 starring clint howard of all people it's called evil speak heard of it i and had it the is, box art in my head from the vhs days yes but it's clint howard uh looking far too old to be a college student right. but being a college student and he finds this warlock or something that's sealed away in a computer program mm -hmm. and he kind of accidentally lets it out and it's a typical 80s movie like there are bullies at this school that are borderline homicidal <laughs> like they make any bully you faced in real life seem like the tamest most friendly person you've ever met but it's an entertaining movie it's a a, a real cheap cult classic movie like i said it stars clint uh -huh. howard who you know from the ice cream man and god whenever he got a lifetime achievement award at the mtv uh movie awards like back in the yeah. 90s just gave the Ron best Howard's speech ever brother. like he won a yes like he won a real award too and he's in so many like big classic movies where he's just a bit character but uh He's the star of this. He just gives a fun performance, and it's just a it's just a silly fun movie. So mm. I had a good time with it. Yeah, he was the Ice Cream Man in the, in the mid nineties. Yes, St co-starring David Naughton, who's in this film that we're talking about today. Yes. Um. And yeah, he was also not, he not only is he Ron Howard's little brother, but he also Ron always fit sh just shoehorns him in for like a scene or two in all of his movies. It's it's kind of great. It's Absolutely. like watching an episode of Where's Waldo. It's like Where's Clint? <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, I I love it. Clint Howard's great. Um, damn, eighty one. I didn't know Clint Howard was doing films that early. That's great. Though. I know, right? And he still. He's, he's a young Clint Howard, but he still looks too old to be in college. But it's because Clint Howard went bald at, like, Oh, yeah, because I, I, I just watched <laughs> the other night um, The Wraith, which I love, and he pops up in that. And that's 86, and I think I was thinking to myself how young he is in that. I can only imagine yeah. how, how young he is in this movie. So, all right, very good. I'll have to check that one out. Um, number four is a classic for me, My Bloody Valentine. Uh, mm. This is a favorite between me and, and, in fact, if Sean were here today, he'd put this much higher on his list. Um, he's the only person who loves Harry Warden more than me. 
Um, <laughs> dude, I, I, I'm a sucker for the the original. I, I actually didn't mind the remake of Tom Atkins. Um, I think the remake is actually surprisingly good. The mm. one with um, Jensen Ackles from Supernatural. And Kerr Smith, who I just ran into at the horror convention I was at over the weekend. Oh, nice. He's getting gray, but eh, other than that, it looks good. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, no, just, I actually he, like the remake to that, too. Yeah, it's actually not a bad remake at all. And, and it, so surprisingly, I, I'm not one who's, I'm not an advocate for 3D at all. That was a phase that came and went, thank God. But I remember that was one of the first true 3D movies that when 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 the gimmick came back that was one of the first films after like Avatar and I remember seeing it and I was like damn the, the 3D effects blew me away and then it just got done to death so alright very good um, you you're number four now next you're next um my number four was one of your honorable mentions, and I would have to say My Bloody Valentine was essentially my number six. That was the movie mm-hmm. I bumped off for uh, Evil Speak whenever I wanted to include that. Okay. But uh, going back to your honorable mentions, my number four, and the Halloween Megapod, I have Halloween Part 2. Uh, big fan of the Halloween franchise. I've I've watched this movie so many times, and I know we debated this on the, the Megapod, but I liked the idea of them making Lori and Michael siblings, so I've always had an affinity for part two. I like that, you know, she dead shot shoots him twice in <laughs> each awesome. eye, just because this high schooler who's hopped up on a bunch of sedatives should totally be able to do that, but no, nah, it's a good sequel. It's It's... A ripoff of Friday the 13th, but it still remains somewhat true to the Halloween formula. So it cracks my yeah, list. Yes, and yes, definitely. 100%. Very good. Uh, my number three, a movie I've been swearing by since I first saw it about 15 years ago. It's a film called Madman. It's a slasher film. It's about this urban legend, kind of like this cropsy character, see the burning, uh, named Madman Mars. And, um,. I know the, the the lead in the film, the the the, the final girl, is played by Galen Ross from Dawn of the Dead, and um, man, she gets put through the ringer. In fact, it's one of the most downright brutal slasher films of the early '80s you can think of. Like some of these people go in the most, um, they, they go in some some ways. I'm just gonna say that. So yeah, I just remember the brutality of the movie and the way the third act was just something they, it takes something that you would think like most of the, the slasher films it's always like the, the the killer versus the the final girl in the third act and always the final girl ends up you know when standing on top not so much a madman without getting the spoilers and I, I had a lot of respect for the decisions that it made so it's a film that I've always stuck with you know syndrome just put it out on 4k last year of course, I picked it up, and it looks great, even though a film like that has no business being put in 4K. But, <laughs> hey, man, if you're going to put the time and money into it, I'm going to support it. So that's that's my take on it. So, yeah. Uh, Madman is a Madman's another movie where, you know, kind of like American Werewolf in London, I'm sure it didn't have anywhere near the financial success or critical acclaim, but it's another movie that when I watched it, I was surprised they didn't make like five more of those in the 80s just because it seemed so set up to be a slasher franchise. Oh, and the word I was looking for earlier about the movie is unapologetic. The film is mm-hmm. so unapologetic. But you've seen Madman. 
I did. Okay. It is up there with Evil Speak being one of the movies because when COVID was going on, when nobody could do anything, I had a buddy who did a watch party on Facebook every single Saturday, nice. and he showed us a bunch of cult movies. So that's where I saw Evil okay. Speak, and it's where I saw Madman. Very good because nine times out of ten, when I mention Madman, it's like what? And I'm always the one <laughs> introducing it to people. So yes, very good. All right, um, you number three, you're up. Uh, my number three, again, you mentioned it in your honorable mentions. It's Evil Dead. I, you know, I couldn't make this list without the original Evil Dead, yeah. even though I think the original isn't quite there yet. Like, it's not Evil Dead 2. It's not Army of Darkness. You can see how good it is, and you can see the potential that Sam Raimi has. And it honestly, it's a movie that I'm sure it wasn't shot sequentially. So few movies right. are. But as you're watching it, it genuinely seems to get better made as the movie goes on. So it almost feels like <laughs> Raimi was learning his craft as it goes on. When you watch the opening scenes of, you know, them driving around the mountains, you're thinking like, oh, this is a D-tier movie. It's not going to be any good. The acting's going to be bad. The camera work is terrible. But once they get to the cabin, everything starts getting particularly well-made and incredibly inventive. Yeah. So, you know, for those reasons and just how influential it was and still is, we just had Evil Dead Rise come out this year. Evil Dead's my number three. Yeah. Um, big Evil Dead fan. We actually did Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 last year for the Harathon, so... If you want to hear my thoughts on that in more detail, check it out. Um, other than that... Yeah, like I said, I at least had to acknowledge it because it's like there's mm -hmm. so many films in 81 that came out. Like, I at least had to say something about it because I'm a big fan of it, even though it's not on my top five. That being said, number two is a film we're about to talk about in American Werewolf in London. My reasons, like I said, we're about to talk about it. So, yeah. How about you? What's your number two? Uh, also American Werewolf in London, which leads me to wonder if we're going to have the same number mm. one also. But, uh... Same thing. We'll talk about it when we talk about it, but it's it's a great movie. It it deserves to easily be in this top five and at least this high. Yeah. Yep. Number one for me, also a film that we covered on last year's Harathon, The Howling. I am a huge Howling fan. Huge, huge, huge. Um, I I, I definitely prefer it over London. Um, I I just love Joe Dante. Um, I'm a sucker for Joe Dante. I love his Dick, his, uh, Dick Miller cameos in all of his films and so on and so forth. But um, it's a bizarre plot. I love Dee Wallace. Bless her. She's been on the podcast before. She's one of my favorite final girls. But the film is just more than that. I love the whole idea of the colony. And, you know, like I said, we talked about the film in detail last year. Check it out. It's one of my favorites. Uh, me and Corey were on that one. But... I'm a huge Howling fan. My number one. Were you thinking what I was thinking or are you something different? No, I did go in a different direction. Okay. So I went with my favorite horror franchise of all time. Arguably my favorite entry in that entire franchise. I had to go with Friday the 13th Part 2. Oh my I God. Think... I completely left that off my <laughs> list. That wasn't even intentional. Holy shit. <laughs> I was oh. wondering that it didn't even make your it, honorable it, it mentions. Would be I was on like, number wait a second. No, no, no. Um, okay. Now that that's been brought to the conversation, and for some oddball reason, I completely just neglected it, um, it'd be a close six. Oh my God. Might even knock okay. off possession. Might. 
I love Sackhead Jason. Yes, Sackhead Jason is the best with his one eye hole cut out. I'm always surprised, and I've watched part two so many times. I watched the Friday movies just an irresponsible number of times in my life, but I'm always surprised considering it's nothing more than a cash grab. Friday the Mm -hmm. 13th came out, made a ton of money, so they rushed a sequel into production. I think it's the best made of the franchise, and that's shocking to me given that, like I said, it's just a cash grab movie, but the characters are fleshed out, the tension is real, Everything about it just really works. And when you watch it in the context of everything else, it becomes even better once you've seen the other movies and you play it in the context of what else you see Jason the character become. It's just even more entertaining. So yeah, I I love this movie. This movie is genuinely in my like top 25 movies of all time. So it's got to be my number one for the year. Yeah, I can't believe I left that off my list. Damn. It's funny too. Uh... <laughs> Another person, um, Warrington Gillette, the, who, who played Jason in the one scene when he jumps through the window with the long mm-hmm. hair. He was at the convention this past weekend, too. But I don't know. I've, he's always rubbed me the wrong way. The whole rivalry between That's him and That's what Steve I've Dash. heard. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a, um, uh, Nick Castle and... Um, uh, what the hell is that guy's name? Uh, Moran. Tony Moran from Halloween. Mm-hmm. Tony Moran plays Michael Myers for like three seconds when he has his mask taken off. And yes. he goes to the convention saying he's the original Michael Myers. It's like, motherfucker, you are Michael Myers for two seconds. <laughs> know your role. Come on now. And it's kind of like how Warrington goes around. Like, oh, I'm the Jason from part two. It's like, you were Jason in one scene when you jumped through the window and almost missed your step, according to all the documentaries I've watched. That's what I've heard, yeah. And you didn't have the sack on your head. That's exactly. what everyone remembers. Steve Dash, rest in peace, is Jason. Is Sackhead Jason. So, um... Who was it? Um, the, the 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 actress who played Vicky in that one, um, Lauren Marie Taylor. She was also in Neighbors with uh, John Belushi. Um, I actually interviewed her, not for my podcast, actually for a friend's podcast two years ago. Oh and, wow! Um, she was awesome. She was so cool. So, but other than that, um, did you actually pick up the um? the Scream Factory box set that came out a few years ago because it has that bonus disc on there of the scenes the the rated X scenes from part two I didn't I'm real bad with movies as far as physical media goes I just don't have the storage space in my life for them I the one physical media that I kind of own is comic books and they take up way too much space Mm -hmm. as it is. I just, if I started buying physical movies, I have no idea where I put them. And I think my wife would. I understand. That's, that's totally cool. All right. Well then shit, let's get into the film itself. Now let's do our film effect breakdown. Hello again, friends. This is the film effect podcast. Good morning. Film effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted a punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. All right, kicking off the film effect breakdown. We got the cast and crew rundown. David Norton stars as David Kessler. You know, David's just very natural. His performance is what you'd expect from a young adolescent, you know, young college adult 
whatever type. Um, there's kind of two sides of his performance in this movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. His chemistry with Jack, of course, played by Griffin Dunn, which we'll get to in a second. Um, you know, they just hit it off so well in this film. Um, it just it, it transpires on screen. It's just it's one of my favorite things about the movie, actually. And then when he becomes, you know, the wolf and everything later on, like the performance in the second half, you know, his fear just he does a really good job of playing scared. I think he doesn't do it. He's not over the top. He's not annoying. Um, I mean, the transformation scene alone, oh, good God. I mean, that performance alone should tell you what a good job he does in this movie. And then we got Jenny Ogeter. Uh, besides Child's Play 2, this was the other film that I know her from, um, other than her very brief performance in um, <clears throat> Darkman. But, you know, of course, Alex Price, the nurse that David falls for. You know, she's good in this, in this movie. She's very soft. Um, her heart's in the right place, um, as far as, you know, Jenny, how she comes off on screen, I, I, I have no qualms with it, you know, I've always thought she did a good job, I think overall she's a really good English performer, um, everything that I've seen her in so far, you know, has, I've, I've always put it this way, I've always thought, I've always said that she's good, and this film is, you know, her, her, this, her best performance is this movie, of course, and um, I, going back to that chemistry bit with uh, David and Jack, it also goes both ways with David and Alex. I, I'm, they're, they're, I believe that the two of them are falling for each other throughout this movie. Um, there's just something very... Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Crap, I'm in a, I'm in a thing. But it, you know what I'm getting at, though. Um, so there's that. Griffin Dunn, I've always been a big Griffin Dunn fan. I think I've mentioned that before on the podcast. Um, everything from After Hours, of course, to this. Um, I mean, and he, he is a guy that always pops up. My Girl is a film that I always think about with him. Quiz Show, um, 40 Days and 40 Nights. Gosh, for as bad as that movie is, for some reason, I remember him being in that film. And so, you know, and he's he's one of those guys that he whenever he pops up, it's like, hey, it's Griffin Nunn. I love that guy. And, you know, this movie, just like Jenny, uh, Augeter, this is his best performance, you know. Um, this is what really skyrocketed his career. And, of course, everything I talked about before with him and David, you know, goes, same thing goes for him. So, um and then that's pretty much, you know, your, your main cast. Of course, the people at the, the, the pub, you got the, the late Rick Mile, the, uh, Brian Glover, <laughs> who I remember from Alien 3. Um, y- you know, it's your typical horror film, you know, you're warning people, you know, stay away. It's, it's, it's those kind of guys, and they play the part well, you know, and... Um, that's that. So the film was written for the screen and directed by John Landis, produced by George Falsey Jr. Landis is associate producer, who also was acquitted in the manslaughter case with Landis from the uh, Twilight Zone movie case. Everything from um, his filmography goes from everything from Training Places to Coming to America and Grumpier Old Men. Uh, cinematography by Robert Painter from The Mechanic and Shadows Land. Also did Scorpio, Superman 2 and 3, Little Shop of Horrors, and The Muppets Take Manhattan. 
edited for, uh, or by, rather, Malcolm Campbell. Um, you know, the one thing I wanted to bring up is this film's pacing. Because this is a real easy watch, you know. Um, I think it's about an hour and a half, a little bit more than that, maybe. And the, the editing, I mean, maybe he had Landis over his shoulder, but I, I just think that's one of the also the, the film's, you know, stronger points is the uh, the pacing, and that's all because of the editing, of course. Music by Elmer Bernstein. I mean, his career started back in the 50s. Everything from the Magnificent Seven to Killing Mockingbird, The Great Escape, True Grit. I'm talking about the original. Not that there's anything wrong with the 2010 version, but, uh, you know, I like both of these movies, actually. Animal House, Meatballs, Ghostbusters, Stripes, Innocent Blood, Gangs of New York. Um, that was actually his final score, and it was rejected by Scorsese and replaced by Howard Shore. A little tidbit there. So there's that. Let's go into the production history now. So John Landis came up with the story while he worked in Yugoslavia as a production assistant on the film Kelly's Heroes back in 1970. He and a Yugoslav member of the crew were driving in the back of a car on location when they came across a group of Romani people. The Romani people appeared to be performing rituals on a man being buried so that he would not rise from the grave. This made Landis realize he would never be able to confront the undead and gave him the idea for a film in which a man would go through the same thing. Landis wrote the first draft of The American Werewolf in London back in 1969 and shelved it for over a decade. Two years later, Landis wrote, directed, and starred in his debut film, Schlock, which developed a cult following. Landis developed box office status in Hollywood through the successful comedy films The Kentucky Fried Movie Animal House and the Blues Brothers before securing $10 million financing from Polygram Films for his werewolf film. Financiers believe that Landis' script was too frightening to be a comedy and too funny to be a horror movie. Universal Studios execs were pressuring the director to cast Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as David Kessler and Jack Goodman, but Landis went with unknown actors instead. Filming took place between February and March 1981 because director John Landis wanted the film to take place during poor weather. Makes sense. The transformation scene where David falls on all fours, his back mutates, showing bones cracking and rearranging themselves, was built from the lower neck to the glutes, and is involved. And this involved various pneumatically maneuvered spine and bone shapes and independent vertebrae mechanisms, as well as moving shoulder forms. The airlines of the rams all converged at a large plywood board. Subtle transforming effects were also provided by small bladders included within overlapping layers beneath the skin. It was also the most complex puppet of the sequence and needed at least 10 or more crew members to operate in a proper coordination. The moors were filmed around the Black Mountains in Wales, and East Proctor is in reality the tiny village of Chickadarn, about 6 miles northeast, sorry, about six miles southeast of Boothwells off the A470. The Angel of Death statue was a prop added for the film, but the red phone box is real, though the Welsh road signs were covered by a fake tree. The pub shown in the film, known as the Slaughtered Lamb, was actually a cottage located in Chickadarn, and the interior scenes were filmed in the Black Swan, Old Lane, Martyrs Green, and Surrey. An American Werewolf in London was the first film allowed to shoot in Piccadilly Circus in 15 years. 
Landis accomplished this by inviting 300 members of London's Metropolitan Police Service to a screening of his new movie, The Lose Brothers. The police were so impressed by his work that they granted the production a two-night filming permit between the hours of 1 and 4 a.m. The film's ironically upbeat soundtrack consists of songs which refer to the moon. Bobby Vinton's slow, soothing version of Blue Moon placed on the opening credits. Van Morrison's Moon Dance plays as David and Alex make love for the first time. Creedence Clearwater Revival's Bad Moon Rising plays as David nears the moment of changing into a werewolf. A soft, bittersweet ballad version of Blue Moon by Sam Cooke plays during the agonizing wolf transformation. And the Marcel's doo-wop version of Blue, Blue Moon plays over the end credits. The score itself was composed and conducted by Elmer Bernstein and conducted at Olympic Studios in London, engineered by Keith Grant. Bernstein's score can be heard during David's nightmares when Dr. Hirsch drives through the moors to East Proctor and when Alex confronts David in the alley. Though Bernstein wrote and recorded music to accompany the transformation scene, the director chose not to use it. The three-minute passage was eventually released by Bernstein under the title Metamorphosis. All right, let's run down the film's plot real quick. So two American graduate students from New York City, David Kessler and Jack Goodman, are trekking across the moors in Yorkshire. As night falls, they stop at the Slaughtered Lamb, a local pub. Jack notices a five-pointed star on the pub's wall. When he asks about it, the pub-goers grow hostile, and he and David leave. The pub-goers warn the pair to keep to the road, stay clear of the moors, and beware of the full moon. David and Jack wander off the road and onto the moors, where a vicious creature attacks them. Jack is killed, and David is seriously injured. The beast is shot and killed by some concerned pub-goers who follow the two young men. Instead of an animal carcass, David sees a young nude man lying next to him before a, de- uh, a dead nude young, young <laughs> a dead nude young man lying next to him before passing out. David wakes up three weeks later in a London hotel. Inspector Villiers interviews David and informs him that the locals reported an escaped lunatic attacked him and Jack. David insists a rabid dog or wolf attacked them. An undead Jack later appears to David and explains that they were attacked by a werewolf. Since David was bitten, he is now a werewolf too. Jack is cursed to walk to Earth in limbo, neither dead nor alive, until the wolf's bloodline is severed. Jack urges Dave to kill himself until the, before the next full moon so he does not harm anyone. Dr. Hirsch visits the slaughtered lamb to investigate, suspecting that David might have been influenced by local superstitions. When asked about the incident, any pub, the pub-goers deny any knowledge of David, Jack, or the attack. However, one distraught pub-goer privately tells David Hirsch that David will endanger other people when he transforms. Upon being released from the hospital, David stays with Alex Price, a pretty young nurse who cared for him. Alex tells David that she is worried about his mental state. Jack, now even more decayed, appears and warns David that he will become a werewolf the next night and again advises him to kill himself to avoid killing innocent people. David refuses to believe him, but the full moon rises and David transforms into a werewolf. prowls the streets and the London underground, killing six people total. He wakes up the next morning naked on the floor of a wolf enclosure at the London Zoo with no recollection of what happened and returns to Alex's flat. After learning of the, night's pre- of the previous night's murders and realizing that he's responsible, David unsuccessfully attempts to get himself arrested in the, squ- in, the squ- in the local square. He calls his family to say he loves them, 
then loses the courage to slit his wrists with a pocket knife. David sees Jack, who's even now more decayed, outside an adult movie theater. Inside, Jack introduces David to his previous night's victims, some of whom are furious of David and suggest different suicide methods to free them from their undead state. David transforms into a werewolf inside the cinema. Into a werewolf inside the cinema, he decapitates Inspector Victor, Inspector Villiers, and wreaks havoc in the streets, killing several motorists and bystanders. The police surround and trap David in an alleyway. Alex arrives and runs down the alley to try and calm David down by saying she loves him. Although David briefly recognizes her, he lunges forward and is shot dead by the police, reverting to human form. Alright, let's get to the full effect film discussion. Alright, let me get to my notes. Jeez. Alright, so first thing we see is for Jim O'Rourke. And for those of you who don't know who Jim O'Rourke is, he was a longtime producer friend of uh, John Landis's who passed away right before production of Lung Cancer. Um, in fact, after he passed away, Landis banned his crew from smoking on set entirely. So, Oh, wow. You know, so I've, you know, because I, I, it's like the first thing you see, and it's like, well, who is that? So, yeah, that's who Jim O'Rourke is. Uh, so then we get the opening credits set to Bobby Vinton's Blue Moon, set to beautiful shots of the Alorian Moors near Hay, a mountain that straddles the Welsh border, and Brecon Beacons National Park. It's beautiful. It reminds me of, like, Iceland or something. It's just, I gotta get out there and explore. I want to go backpacking too myself. Just hold the werewolves this time. <laughs> but, yeah, after that, we're just right off the cuff introduced to our two main characters, Jack and David. And, um, you know, one of the things I love about this film, and I'm probably going to mention this a lot in this episode is the pacing. Um, the editor of this film, uh, shit, I got my wrong notes popped up. I'm, I'm looking at Friday the 13th part two notes right now. (laughs) Damn you. No, the editor Malcolm Campbell in this movie, like, I'm, I'm going to mention that name a bunch, too, because uh, just the pacing, like I said, is just excellent. Like it, it's just, it just cuts no corners. There's no bullshit. You know, this movie's just get in, get out, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. So we get our credits, and then we're introduced to our two leads here, uh, David and Jack, two college kids backpacking, just going on a three-month excursion. And, uh, you know, Jack's kind of one. Jack is played by Griffin Dunn, and um, I'm a big After Hours fan, so I'm a big Griffin Dunn fan, naturally. David Naughton, um, he just did this film and then just became a bona fide, like, character actor for the genre. He pops up in so many horror movies mm-hmm. as, like, that guy. Like, just off the top of my head, like, we just brought up the Ice Cream Man. But then he's also in Amityville, A New Generation, which is one of, my, one of the more underrated Amityville sequels. And he pops up in that, too. It's like, man, this guy's, like, in everything. I, I love their, just, their, their chemistry, man. Like, they, they naturally just hit it off, like, they're a couple best friends, like... It's, it doesn't feel forced or anything like that. Um, it it kind of... It, it's, it's almost like Landis had the two of them just go spend a month, you know, together backpacking themselves, like just getting to know one another before they started rolling cameras. You know, it's I just think their chemistry is just impeccable. What do you think? 
Yeah, I agree. Their rapport's really good. Their conversation flows really well yeah. between the two of them. It feels natural. Mm -hmm. It feels like real dialogue. I like that whenever you first see them, they're coming off of a back of a truck with a bunch with of a sheep, sheep in it, yeah. which, yeah, so obviously like the whole wolf among sheep kind of thing, which even though he's not at that point, it, it lets you know like, oh, he's going to be the, the werewolf that we find out about later on. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think they have a really great chemistry between them. And then they begin their back. I think they are way braver than I am because they're just out, like you said, <laughs> backpacking in the middle of nowhere to the point where, like, they're perfectly fine with just getting turned around and walking in any and every direction. I got way too much anxiety for that, man. I got to know where I'm going. I got to know when I'm going to eat next. <laughs> oh, yeah. And speaking of, we get to the slaughtered lamb. And it's like, where's the lamb? Jack's definitely not feeling, you know, he's not feeling welcome at this place. Especially when he feels, so notices the, uh, the, the five-point star on the wall and becomes a curious party. But, um, yeah, they go in there and they're looking for food. They ain't got nothing, nothing, nothing warm to drink, nothing to eat, just beer. Um, and, like, right away, they're not felt welcome at all. Nice-looking group. Hey, listen, at least it's warm in here. Look at that. Yeah, what about it? It's a five-pointed star. Well, maybe the owners are from Texas. <laughs> Remember the Alamo. I beg your pardon? Oh, he was just joking. Joking? I remember the Alamo. I saw it once in London, in Leicester Square. She means in the cinema. That film with John Wayne. Oh, yeah, of course. Checkmate. Right, with Lawrence Harvey, and everybody dies in it. Very bloody. Bloody awful, if you ask me. Here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gladys, Tom, did you hear the one about the rushing oh. 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 Go to a woman and let me speak. Ask him what the candles are for. <laughs> oh, ask him. All right, left on a short to it. No, no, emergency. It's a pentangle. A five-pointed star. It's used in witchcraft. Lonchini Jr. and Universal Studios maintain that's the mark of the wolf man. Oh, I see. And you want me to ask them if they're burning candles to ward off monsters? Right. <laughs> Wrong. All right, then. There was this airplane over the Atlantic on its way to New York. And it was full of men from the United Nations. <laughs> Go on, ask them. You ask them. So halfway over the ocean, the engines run low on petrol. So they have to lighten the plane. So they heave out all the baggage, but it's still too heavy. So they chuck out all the seats, but it's still too heavy. Finally, this froggy steps up, shouts, Vive la France, and leaps out. Then an Englishman. Yeah. He steps up, shouts, God save the Queen, and he leaps out. But the plane is still too heavy. So the Yank delegate from Texas, he steps up, shouts, Remember the Alamo! And jokes out the Mexican! Excuse me! One more time, Scar on the wall floor! You. 
made me miss. Yeah, everybody just stares at them when they come in. This it's is clearly a community that's not used to to having outsiders. No, right. And, you know, they don't really do themselves any favors, like, talking about the Alamo and shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, uh, David Glover, one of the character actors who plays, one of the chess players, it's funny because it's, it's him and... Um, What's his name? Um, Rick Mayall from... He, he was Drop Dead Fred. That's probably the most famous oh, role. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Drop Dead Fred. And um, he was also one uh, the young the younger ones. He was Rick on that show. Um, another 80s show that uh, my boy Sean was a big fan of. Talked about that show a lot. I never personally watched it, but I know he was from that. Because when he passed away, that was like... <laughs> Sean like went on this like two-week thing just all I did was watch the episodes of the young ones on tv but um yeah drop dead fred is like the the one role i remember him most from so it's the two of them it's 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 i'm sorry not david glover brian glover brian glover and rick may all playing chess and other guys who are uh, kind of like giving them shit about the alamo and um kind of just he's the one who says you know beware of the moon and, you know, you get your typical warnings and um, they just feel very uncomfortable and kind of like just they go to leave. Now, the barmaid, she doesn't want them to go out while the rest of the, the, the mocking patrons are just, they tell them to just go on, warn them to stick to the roads and be of the moon. And that's it. Now, I remember here in my notes, is this murder? <laughs> Like, what would you call their actions here? Like, knowing damn well what's happening. You got the barmaids. Yeah, she's just like, you can't let them go out. And he's just like, he's like, what do you want me to do about it? You know, like, stick to the roads, beware the moon. That's all. Like, yeah, I don't understand the idea that apparently werewolves don't go on roads, for one thing. I don't understand how sticking to the roads would have helped them. But, yeah, no, you're right. Like, there's... There's nothing these two kids do when they enter the bar that is so egregious that would make these people just kick them out and basically feed them to a werewolf. It doesn't make right. any sense. So I, I'm surprised that the, yeah, the, the barmaid's the only one who's saying like, no, we should keep them in. Like, I don't know. I feel like at some point somebody has to say a little bit more like, no, it's dangerous out. Just sit here and and drink the tea that the lady made for exactly. you and, you know i i don't know if it's murder but it's it's something it feels it feels like these people are real big dicks yeah cuz i kept i'm watching this scene thinking to myself there's plenty of room for everyone right now everyone can just hang out in there until the werewolf sounds go away the howling stops and it's like really at the end of the day they're getting the cold shoulder and all this shit because they made homeboy miss his shot. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> darts. Oh, that's right. That's right. He missed his dart he shot. He missed his dart shot. Yeah, he's like, I never miss. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand. Like, the, the thing that kind of throws me is, and like I said, this is a community that's clearly not used to having visitors or outsiders right, or anything. Right, right. But these two guys come in and they ask about the thing on the wall and the entire bar goes hushed. And it's like, 
that thing is just sitting out there in the open. You guys don't just have some, like, talking point to say about it. Like, ah, it's just, like, even later on, the barmaid tells the doctor, like, oh, that's just something that's always been there. Right, we just right. never bothered covering it up. But when these two guys come in and ask about it, everybody in the bar is like, oh, holy shit, they noticed our pentagram. <laughs> I don't know. It's like kind of something you want to put like a hang a picture or something over it if you don't want you know people to call attention <laughs> to true. it that's that's true does that lessen its power if you just put a painting or something yeah, over it just, just hang up you know it's still there hang a i don't know a, a picture of elvis or something over that shit you know it'd be all right <laughs> i don't know so there they go out rain begins out of out of the blue it just starts pouring down raining and then the two ignore they're ignoring the warnings right off the cuff and they go begin their they're walking away from the road and everyone back at the bar begin hearing the howling they think they'll be safe in the rain that's what they say it's like they, they might be safe in the rain and, and um, I think it's Brian Glover's character who speaks up and he's like what are you talking about it's like they're gonna be killed no matter what like yeah oh uh, that's Staying in the rain is as useful as staying on the it's road. Like werewolves don't attack in the rain, haven't you heard? Yeah. <laughs> so we cut back to the two, and there's no more rain as they begin here and howling themselves, and they get scared. And I love how tense this scene is, and how the attack begins so suddenly as they're trying to avoid the circling sounds of the wolf surrounding them. And then they stop after David trips and, and they, they share like the two of them. I, I look at it as David and Jack having one final laugh together before Jack's, you know, ripped apart. And David's attacked mm-hmm. as the Patriots appear. And they, they did come and at least save David. They appeared to shoot the, the werewolf dead. And we see, I like how at least we see the, the dead monster return to human form as it dies. Yes. You see, it's, yeah, that, it's a person. That, that confused the hell out of my wife. My wife was like, why is that guy naked? I was, oh, like, That's the werewolf. I was like, that's the werewolf. Right. <laughs> she was like, oh, okay. Werewolves are humans, remember? I think it's such a quick shot of the it's guy that she thought, it was, she thought it was Jack. It's, she just inherently thought that was Jack they're laying their wounds. Yeah, Jack got cleaned up all of a sudden. Yeah. The rain cleaned his corpse <laughs> up. <laughs> Washed his clothes away. Yeah. Suddenly he got shot and not ripped apart. So it was at this point... And I know they've had conversation about, like, they're clearly college-aged. Uh-huh. And I know older movies are kind of notorious for casting, like, people that are 30 to be high schoolers or anything. Bring was, it up. Let's talk about it. Was it just it. me, or did 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 David Naughton not pass at all for college-age? Like both Jack, old to me. Maybe I'm used to seeing... Jack, Griff- kind of. I'm kind of used to seeing Griffin Dunn at an older age, so it's kind of like... Okay. Maybe in my head, it's like, I refuse to see him any younger than what he's supposed to be. Like, no. I, I, I was thinking that, too, and I was waiting for one of us to bring that part up, because if you weren't going to, I was definitely going to <laughs> later on. Yeah, he doesn't... I don't know if he's supposed to be 18 or 25. Like, I mean, he's somewhere in college-age, but he, he doesn't with, look it. To begin with, Naughton spends, like, 60% of this film naked. Like, yeah, he is naked a lot. I never thought about it until tonight how just little clothes he wears throughout this entire movie. I was like, damn, yeah. my boy's naked throughout a lot of this movie. Um, <laughs> but no, it's 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 definitely something where, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to go and look up their actual ages when they filmed this, but it definitely looks like they should, they probably were like in their mid to late 20s. Maybe they, At maybe least, maybe they were, yeah. maybe they're older college kids. You know, you're never too old yeah. to go to college. 
You're not. Maybe they, they were specified. in grad school. I don't know their lives. Hey, if, if you want to be happy like you're graduating at the age of 28, then God damn it, you <laughs> go celebrate with your three-month tour. Your three-month excursion through uh, through Europe. And hurry up and get to Italy for poor Jack. He's got women to get to. That's get right. To. That's right. That's what one thing we know about Jack before he dies is he is one horny son of a bitch. He is. So um, David wakes up a few weeks later in a London hosp- a hospital as uh, we're introduced to Jenny Agater's nurse, Alex Price. Ah, Price, not Prince. And uh, John Woodvine's Dr. Hirsch. While the two of them were discussing David's attack and how he called out for his dead friend after finally waking up. And this is where we see Mr. Uh, Mr. Frank Oz, a little cameo. He's the guy who's, uh, Mr. Kessler, I appreciate how upset you are, but there's no reason for hysterics. <laughs> you know what? I saw in the credits Frank Oz was in this movie and it didn't click on me that he was the the ambassador. That's it. It's the one scene he's in. Okay. Uh, if you want to count the the the, the voice the, the the Kermit and Miss Piggy cameo later on on TV, where you hear Frank Oz's oh, voice. Yeah. Well, the well, they're credited as, as themselves, <laughs> obviously, because of course they are. And um, so yeah, it's like I love how Frank Oz is like fourth billion in this movie, and he's only in this one scene yeah. for like twenty seconds. Yeah, he's in it. Yeah, he's in it for like half a minute at most. Yeah, exactly. Um. So I know you brought it up earlier, but have you actually seen An American Werewolf in Paris? I don't believe I did. It's oh, you would know if you've seen it. <laughs> I was going to say it's possible. I watched it back in the 90s when I was like a teenager or something. But I, if I did, I remember nothing about it. And I may be getting what I do think I remember about it confused with another movie. So I don't think I did. All right. So I guess I'll bring it up now because it's probably the, the only time... American Wolf and Paris will be brought up on this podcast because I don't plan on covering it. I remember very well it came out Christmas Day, 97. And I remember seeing I didn't go on Christmas Day, but I went like probably a couple days afterward. Me and Corey went and saw it in the theater and all I remember about the movie was it was just a CGI mess. And saw it a couple more times here and there on video and DVD but then nothing for like 15 years radio silence that movie was out of my life and there was no looking back and then there was a this 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 uh, German company physical media this this, comp, this company called turbine they put out some great stuff uh, they, they just released a uh, frighteners in 4k with this big box six disc set it's beautiful and then they did they they to my surprise they released an American an American Werewolf in Paris last year in this big media book and it's in 4K and I was like okay let me give this movie <laughs> another shot so I ordered it I it was an import I got it for like thirty five dollars on eBay it wasn't a bad price at all and it looks looks great especially when it's sitting next to my uh, London uh, box set from Arrow. And the movie itself, I went back and rewatched it um, last earlier this year or late last year, whatever it was. And I don't want to say I fully came around on it, but it wasn't nearly as bad as I remember it being. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, I might say the film's a little underrated if it wasn't for the piss-poor CGI, which 
you're never going to change that. And it's always going to be there. And it's always going to yeah. take a, it's going to take a lot from the movie because the CG is that bad. But other than that, like, you know, it's got my girl Julie Delpy from the Before Trilogy. She's like the star. Um, Tom Everett Scott, I'm a big That Thing You Do fan, so it might be a little bit biased. But he's also okay. In it. So Tom Everett Scott is in it because yeah. When I think of American Werewolf in Paris, I I swear to God I get mental flashes of Dead Man on Campus, which I, I think he was also movie. okay. But he's also in <laughs> he that is, right, and I think that's why it's, I think that's why I get those two confused. Him and Mark Paul Gosler from Saved by the Bell or Dead. Is that's it. Yeah. Dead Man on Campus, and then American Werewolf in Paris. It's him. Um. The guy who gets his like, have you ever seen Rat Race? I haven't seen it. I know of it. So Seth Green's character, it's him and his brother, and his brother is like, because it came out in two thousand one. So like, people with like all these facial piercings and shit was like was like all the hotness. The the actor he was also in the film Grind from about twenty years ago. But the guy's name is Vince Valouf, and he was one of the three friends that go to Paris in that movie. So it's it's this Vince Valouf guy. It's it's um Tom uh shit. Tom Everett Scott. And then it's the bass player for Nine Inch Nails. I shit you <laughs> not. Right. I forget, it's like I don't know how this guy landed a role in this movie, but it's the fucking bass player for Nine Inch Nails. He looks like a legit bass player from a no, an industrial band from the nineties in this movie. And there are a mm. bunch of like extreme like skydivers and shit everything's extreme to them and like the whole idea is they oh, go to the Eiffel the Tower 90s, yeah. and they go they're, 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 they're breaking into the Eiffel Tower to sky to uh, bungee jump off the top of it and they run into Julie Delpy's character who may or may not be a werewolf but she's there as well by herself just to uh, she's there to kill herself and they're there to uh, do the extreme stunts and shit so it's it's kind of like a little meet cute between the two of them, and like I said, the whole werewolf thing gets brought in, and then it's kind of, sort of a sequel to this, but not. They kind of like tiptoe over some wording, but it's kind of like if you didn't know any better, you would just say this is definitely obviously Julie Duffy's character is the daughter of David Naughton and uh, Jenny Agutter, but that's. They don't want you to say oh, that because of rights. Because okay. it was put up by Disney. Yeah, Hollywood Pictures released that. Really? Yeah, Hollywood That's Pictures, hilarious. which is uh, they were a okay. short-lived company that was based off of Disney. They they okay, put it out. Yeah. So. Well, it sounds nineties as hell. It's very nineties. The extreme dude. extreme bungee jumping. <laughs> so nineties. Tom Everett Scott. It sounds nine like one nails, of the more nineties movies. Yeah, nine inch nails bass players. Yeah. <laughs> Oi. Oh yeah. So that's it. That's 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 my ten minutes on American Oil from Paris. <laughs> oh, not coming soon to the film effect. So we we're um we've got two lieutenants now. They arrived to interview David and it's seems like this one involving the bumbling lieutenant fumbling with the metallic pans where it's hard to take John Landis seriously when he claimed this is a straight horror movie and not meant to be funny. Like, I know we talked about this before, but I'm watching this scene thinking to myself, John, are you shitting me? This guy is fumbling <laughs> metallic pans in the middle of an Bed important pans, meeting. Bed pans, no less. 
Like, this is some slapstick shit if I've ever seen it before in my life. And you're trying to yeah. say this is not supposed to be funny. Bullshit. Only thing that <laughs> you could have done differently that, that could have... I don't know. I'm at a loss for words. But you insert Halloween 5 cop music. <laughs> Clowns and shit. Yeah. Anyway. um. So then David starts having these dreams of hunting wild animals throwing, and throughout, running through the woods naked, of course, because he is. And they, they just start to happen randomly. They're occurring in various scenes. And... Um, they, right now, they're not really making any sense. It's just him pretty much portraying a humanized werewolf. And it's freaking him out. So then David and Alex start showing an attraction towards one another as these... I want to touch on the dreams real fast because yeah. you had mentioned the, the editing and the pacing. And I like that there's no real hint that we're about to get dreams. It's not like you see David dozing off and then you get the running no, through the right. woods. Like, just the movie just cuts to those mm-hmm. scenes and expects you to keep up with like, hey, this is a dream sequence that's going on. And I like whenever a movie has the faith and respect for its audience to just like, no, like, all right, people are going to catch up. They're going to catch on. Yeah. We don't have to, you know, let them know like, oh, watch, he's falling asleep. So I dug that. Me too. There's nothing, nothing spoon fed. There's no exposition. Position, mm. It's just right there, and it's just John Landis and company saying, hey, keep up. And, you know, it's not hard, so you're right. I like that. And it's definitely plays a part in the pacing. So these nightmares are still going on. They're getting more and more serious. Like, now we're starting to see shit like, like Nazi creatures Nazi werewolves. breaking into his yes. family's house and just murdering them all. Murdering this family, slitting his throat. Yeah. yeah, it's funny too because the the, the werewolf that that holds uh, Norton's uh, the, the the knife to his neck and all and slits his throat eventually is played by Rick Baker, who does all these effects, which we'll, we'll get into more predominantly once uh, certain scenes start to happen. So, like I said, David Alex starting to have this attraction towards one another, and beginning with this scene with Alex feeding David after he refuses to eat. It's it's hospital food. And I'm looking at this scene and I'm like, that doesn't look so bad. But it's neither here nor there. <laughs> David though, back to back nightmares involving the Nazi monsters. This is this we just talked about this. Um I'm going down my notes here out loud. And then David begins seeing Jack. Yeah, I was gonna say that happens pretty much right after yes. the the Nazi dream, exactly, right? The first time he sees Jack, it's the Nazis, and then you see Jack going, "Can I have a piece of toast?" Can I have a piece of toast? Get the fuck out of here, Jack! Thanks a lot. No, I can't take this. Am I asleep now, awake or what? I realize I don't look so hot, David. I thought you'd be glad to see me. David, you're hurting my feelings. Hurting your feelings? Has it occurred to you that it might be unsettling to see you rise from the grave to visit me? Sorry to be upsetting you, David, but I had to come. Aren't you supposed to be buried someplace in New York? Yeah. Your parents came to my funeral. I was surprised at how many people came. Why should you be surprised? You were a very well-liked person. Yeah, I was, wasn't I? Well, I liked you. Debbie Klein cried a lot. Oh, God, 
Am I asleep now or what? So, so you know what she does? She's so grief-stricken. She runs to find solace in Mark Levine's bed. Mark Levine? An asshole. Life mocks me even in death. I'm going completely crazy. David! What? Now, I'm really sorry to be upsetting you, but I have to warn you. Warn me? We were attacked by a werewolf. I'm not listening to this. On the moors, we were attacked by a lycanthrope, a werewolf. I was murdered, an unnatural death. And now I walk the earth in limbo until the werewolf's curse is lifted. Shut up. The wolf's bloodline must be severed. The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. What? Please believe me. You'll kill people. Nurse! Listen to me! Nurse! The supernatural, <laughs> the power of darkness, it's all true. The undead surround me. Have you ever talked to a corpse? It's boring. I'm lonely. Take your life, David. Kill yourself. And I think Griffin Dunn knocks it out of the park as Dead Jack. I mean, I, I love him throughout this entire movie, but when he starts to come back as Dead Jack and showing more of an obvious comedic side to him, I, I, I like that. And they do this as, they do this exact same fucking gag in, in, in Paris also, for those of you. Yeah, that makes sense. To, to keep it tied into the franchise, uh-huh. you would kind of have to have a, a Jack-adjacent character, yeah. But in, in Paris, they add two. Because you guys best oh. friend, and then there's another one played by Julie Bowen from um, uh, Modern Family. She, she, oh, I love her. Yeah, it's they, her and Tom Everett Scott have like a one night stand, and it ends with him killing her as a werewolf. Oh Jesus! Okay. And then she comes okay. back and joins the best friend with the whole, you know, you gotta kill yourself to save us, yada yada shit. But Griffin Dunn, his makeup is is just impeccable here but then I love how the more we see him the more it just gets worse and worse to the point where the last scene at the, at the theater he's a puppet because he's so deteriorated they couldn't do that out of practical makeup it's just bones and dead skin hanging off the shit you know yeah and his eyeballs are like, the eyeballs, you can see yeah. basically the whole, the whole curvature mm-hmm. of the eye and everything yeah and like I said, it's explained that David must die in order for Jack's undead spirit to be set free. Um, I think the the reason the Jack character works so well in this, and you had mentioned how when we start getting dead Jack, he's kind of funny, and he talks about like, oh, can I have the toast? And But he very fluidly can go from, hey, can I have your toast, to, oh, yeah, you have to kill yourself. Yeah. And it's so believable, like, it... <laughs> A scene like that should be jarring. Like, it should be jarring how quickly he goes from, like, fooling around with his friend to telling his friend, like, you gotta die, and you gotta die now. But it's not. It's not at all. It actually feels very fluid and, like, a very natural flow of the conversation they have. And again, that's down to the uh, the rapport that the two of them have as actors, I think. Oh, exactly. Yeah, the chemistry, no doubt. And, um, yeah, everything uh, just about... Uh, Griffin Dunn and his whole it feels almost like he's like um I'm not hmm, 
trying to think of the name of it. It's kind of like uh, Carol Kane and all from Scrooge when they come. They're not narrators. Oh, okay. Kind of that yeah. as uh, I, I can't even think of the name of, of what that person is or what, what. But you know what I'm getting at. Cratchit, Bob Cratchit. Yeah, yeah. The one that comes back in the chains before he gets the rest of the ghosts. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah, I think it's Cratchit. I don't know if it's Bob Cratchit or something else, but I think that's the the ghost who comes to Scrooge in the chains. Okay, but you get the point. So, yes. and and yeah, that's that's basically what Jack is for the rest of this movie. And you know, we only see him a few more times, but still, it's it's uh. It's great every time. So Alex brings David home with her to stay. And then this is where the two begin a very physical relationship now, almost immediately. And she just and she just out of the blue is like, I have had seven lovers. Yeah. Which I don't know that I've ever been with anybody. And that's how our conversation started was like, let's compare numbers right now before we uh, get down they, to business. They walk in the door. She lays it all out on the table for him. And then they're in the shower. Next, next thing you know, next scene. They're hot and heavy yes. in the shower. I'm like, damn. They don't mess around over in London. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then not long after this, Jack returns again. Now he's sporting a... Oh, and during during the shower sex scene, they play Moon Dance. The, the, I, I think that's the name of the song that's playing, but it's for the second time in the movie, we get a song about or, you know, featuring the moon. Oh, the moon, and there's a lot. It's more than there's two. There's a lot of them, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's more than two, and there could have been more But as that's, well. this is just the second time, because it hasn't been, at this point, it hasn't been, I don't think, since the opening credits. No. So it goes a long time between the first and the second one, and then you kind of start hitting a couple of them in succession. You know, in all the werewolf songs and shit, you would, I'm surprised that Werewolves of London wasn't featured in this movie. <laughs> I think that would have been a little on the nose. Maybe, but I don't know. It's kind of almost like you're expecting it. <laughs> yeah. And it never happens. So yeah, Jack's back, and like I said, he's more zombie-esque with this green look now. And he's letting David know that there's a full moon occurring the following evening, so it's time to kill himself and break the curse. And of course, David believes none of this, even when he improvises the whole Mickey Mouse thing. Hi, David! Because <laughs> it was like, doing my notes and shit for like trivia and stuff, Like I, I, I read that there was like no improv, no, no improving on this, on this set. But then I, the next thing i read is like oh yeah that was like the one thing that was improv was the whole high mickey or the high david thing with mickey mouse i'm like all right okay that makes sense at least it's it's fun yeah yeah so dr kirsch uh retraces david and jack's footsteps he goes out to the actual um place and stops at the slaughtered lamb does everything that they were doing he orders himself a guinness and tries making up a story about an escaped lunatic who killed the American boy. Everyone knows the truth, and they're acting very sus this, in this part. It's like, what lunatic? <laughs> like, we know what the hell is really going on. And it's kind of like the first scene with David and Jack all over again, but this time, like, he's... What the, he? I don't know. He, just, he gets his Guinness, and he's walking around trying to act, like, overly friendly to everyone in the bar to the point where they know something's, like, a little... It's a little suspect, you know? 
mm-hmm. it's it's just rubbing them the wrong way. You know, like you know, he's coming in talking about a lunatic who killed the guy, and even though they know who really killed him because they're the ones who shot him. So, on- see, I was under the impression that it was the bar patrons who made up the lunatic story whenever they delivered David to the hospital. Yeah. Okay. Because they came out that. and shot the real werewolf. Right. And then the doctor said that whenever they got David, okay. he was told that it was because a lunatic attacked them. So I I assumed they were the ones who made up the lunatic story. No, that, that, mean, makes, per- that makes perfect sense. You're right. Okay. Yeah, because they did drop him off, and that, that would that yeah that would all make perfect sense. Okay. So that just puts that scene in a different perspective now. But still... Um, it's it's just it's uh, that doesn't take away from the fact that the way he acts is no still it means weird. they just what what you're saying about how they're acting fishy about it it's because they realize their own lie is coming back to haunt them at this point this guy knows that something's not true about their story right right and at the end of the day lo and behold it's a freaking doctor doing all this questioning it's not even a guy yeah. with any authority it's like no it's a, the guy's it reminds doctor. me of halloween 3 it's tom atkins the it, doctor exactly. running around trying to solve a mystery <laughs> oh man stop it stop it <laughs> and then on his way out he notices the guy earlier who was the dart thrower and he and he's, he sees him outside he leaves and then he sees him when he's outside, and he informs him that the boy is in danger, and that there's something wrong with this place. He'll change, and then all of a sudden we hear, That's enough! Brian Glover yelling, What are you doing? Get back in here and play me some more chess, boy. That's all he does. In fact, that's what he's credited as in the end, in the end credits. Chess player. <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah, it's true. He's never called no, anything. No, they don't give yeah. him a name. Chess you know? player. <laughs> he ain't storyteller. He ain't none of that. Nope. He's just chess player one. Because uh, Rick, um, um, shit, Mayo plays chess player, second chess player. That's his credit in this film. So, uh, where are we at here in my notes? Okay, so Alex, she leaves David all alone in her place. And this is pretty much the one hour mark of the film. This is our transformation scene. And I love how it suddenly begins out of nowhere, too. Like, he's walking around bored. And he's, like, kind of making a mockery of the whole situation. Kind of, like, just making faces in the mirror and shit. And he's kind of brushing yeah. it off as nothing. And then all of a sudden, boom, he just collapses. He's, he's reading a book, and all of a sudden, he just collapses onto the ground, and he rips his clothes off, because of course he does. And he's just like, I'm burning up! And the thing I love most about this transformation scene, other than Rick Baker's effects, is the way Naughton pulls it off. His, his body language, and the way he just reacts to this entire scene, like... I believe he is in the treacherous pain that he's going through. Like, I I f- can, in a sense, feel his suffering just based off of the way he's portraying this in this moment. You saw me standing alone. Jesus Christ! Without a team. God! Oh, 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 oh,
Then suddenly there appeared for me the only The moon had turned oh, to gold. Help me! I have the exact same note like the transformation sequence to this day still very impressive still amazingly holds up and looks so oh, much absolutely. better than you would think practical effects in 1981 could accomplish but i have the same note like aside from that he really sells yes, this transformation as just being excruciatingly painful and he does such an excellent job of making it seem like oh my god it makes your skin crawl because you can imagine that happening to you and how terrible mm. it would physically feel oh yeah and up until this and the howling, we never once saw such detailed transformations ever occur on screen like this. These two films, because it came out so close to one another, they were game changers, especially this one. I mean, this scene in particular is why there is a special effects makeup category at the Academy Awards. This is the inaugural award for this film, the year this film came oh, out. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. and Rick Baker won the award for this movie. He's, yeah, he was the first ever, you know, Academy Award winning makeup effects artist, and it was for this film. Which is that's fantastic. I was unaware of that. That's a nice little bit of information I didn't have before. And it's funny, yeah, it's, too, it's because amazingly he, he, well deserved. He kind of plays a part. He kind of plays a hand in the Howling transformation, too, even though that, that's more Rob Boutin. But I know Rick Baker had a hand in it because it was just, it had never been done before. Like things that you see, it's just, it's, it's crazy how that happened over 40 years ago. And it's still to this day very, it's so convincing. And I'm not, I'm not yeah, even talking about Nod's performance anymore. I'm talking about just the effects work alone. Like what, everything they do, this, it just comes out. And there, I know there's a lot of, quick cuts but you can only show so much you know and yeah a single i mean cut. for as impressive as it is they could only do so right. much in 1981 exactly. so you had to have those cuts but i mean like yeah you could you could show this in a movie today and it would still hold up it would maybe yep. be a little bit dated but you would you would still get away with having this in a movie today and people going like oh that was really good and like how many movies can you say that about like this terminator 2 jurassic park pretty much and i mean not not many more than that can you say like movies that are that old that have effects that you could air in 2023 as a new movie and we would go like yep that looks right mm -hmm. and even though I'm more of a howling fan I think this transformation scene is the best of the two mm -hmm. hands down yeah so can't take that away absolutely not and then of course what follows is David's rampage you get uh, this couple going around the back of their place are killed by David, and then a nearby onlooker, followed by 
a bunch of homeless people, and then finally this businessman who's just coming off the train in the, in the London subway. Um, I love before he gets his death scene, he's by a poster that says, a, nearby, a non-stop orgy, see you next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I assume you're at least a little bit familiar with the I see you, ne- or see you next Wednesday thing. It's, it's John Landis. Yes, yeah. yeah. I was explaining that to my wife. I was like, it's a thing. It's a fake movie that right. shows up in a bunch of exactly. other movies. It's not always a porno. It's a it's, movie, matter of fact, I right. think... Yeah, the only time it's ever actually portrayed as a porno is in this one. But in other movies, it's it's usually just a title card. Or if you find out anything about it, it's you know it changes from movie to movie. I I got a kick out of that because I think this is the most you ever see of it in any movie. It's right there; you can't miss it. Like the poster. Yeah, right well, I mean, next he goes in. And, well, he goes in and watches well, it well, too. Yeah, you hear all the the Mooney and stuff. But yeah, exactly. In the yeah. theater. So, and then um. Oh, meanwhile, Dr. Hirsch's investigation continues as he sits Alex down and tells her about the full moon and David potentially being dangerous. And this is when we catch David waking up naked in the wolf's cage at the zoo. And now this is where to me this, it's like, okay, this is this is definitely horror comedy territory. This is where Landis can't tell me, like, you wrote this to be a I comedy. Mean, Come on. He's literally in the bushes naked calling for a boy holding balloons and then after he steals the balloons from the boy the boy goes to his mom and is like a naked American man stole my balloon (laughs) excuse me hey kid Little boy with the balloons. Come over here. If you come over here, I'll give you a pound. Two pounds. I don't know who you are. I'm uh, the famous balloon thief. Why would a thief want to give me two pounds? Here, I'll explain it to you. Thank you. Yes, sir? A naked American man stole my balloon. My the point is, like, you're right. Exactly correct. Like, this is this is another example of you can't bullshit a bullshit Orlandis. You cannot convince me otherwise this movie was supposed to... This is meant to be funny. It really is. It's more... It's Yes, it's a horror movie through and through at the end of the day, first and foremost. But you're not going to sit here and try and say with a straight face, oh, it's not meant to be funny. Bullshit. Right, You yeah, can't watch this absolutely. scene and tell me otherwise. It's... it's Yeah. It's a funny scene, too. And apparently it only, they only did it in one tape because Nolan was like, I'm not going back in that cage again. So whatever you got, I hope it was a, I hope it was a <laughs> good one. Whatever you got, that's, I hope that was a good shot, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, now David feels great and more alive. Of course he did. He got, his, he got a full meal the night before. And he's convincing Alex the same. And, oh, this is until 
the cab driver informs David of the previous night's murders and realizes that he's truly responsible for all this. And now I wrote here in my notes, he can't even get himself arrested at the square. <laughs> he can't do anything yeah. right now. And like the like the cops say, it's not hard to get arrested if you wanted. Like I don't know why he didn't just hit the just cop. Just punch him exactly. Like that's automatic. Yeah. Put your hands behind your back. You know. Yeah. But I mean, if he does that, you kind of lose the third act of this movie. Oh so. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And I was surprised at how quickly all this stuff happens because I was looking at the t- around this part of the film. I'm looking at the, at the timer and I'm like, it's like 15 minutes left, if that. And it's it don't mess around because literally the next scene is Jack and and David at the porno theater and it's when David introdu- or Jack introduces David to, to the, the people that he murdered the night before. You look awful. Thank you. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't even know if it was me that killed those people last night. I don't remember doing it. What about the zoo? Well, even if I'm not the wolf man, I'm crazy enough to do something like that. And look at me, here I sit in a porno theater in Piccadilly Circus talking to a corpse. I'm actually glad to see you, Jack. I want you to meet some people. David Kessler, this is Gerald Bringsley. Gerald's the man you murdered on the subway. We thought it best for you not to see him, as he's a fresh kill and still pretty messy. Yes. I do look most unpleasant. Why are you doing this to me? This isn't Mr. Goodman's idea. He's your good friend, whereas I am a victim of your carnivorous lunar activities. Mr. Brinsley, I'm sorry. I have absolutely no idea what to say to you. You've left my wife a widow my children fatherless and i understand i am to walk the earth in limbo one of the living dead until the wolf's bloodline is severed and the curse lifted you must die david kessler david this is harry berman and his fiancee judith browns hello hello and these gentlemen are Alf, Ted, and Joseph. Can't say we're pleased to meet you, Mr. Kessler. What shall I do? Suicide. You must take your own life. That's easy for you to say you're you're already dead. No, David. Harry and I and everyone you murder are not dead. The undead. Why are you doing this to me? Because this must be stopped. How shall I do it? Sleeping pills? Not sure enough. I could hang myself. No. No, if you did it wrong, it could be painful. You'd choke to death. So what? Let him choke. Do you mind? The man's a friend of mine. Well, he ain't no friend to me. Gentlemen, please. The gun! I know where you can get a gun. Don't I need a silver bullet or something? Oh, be serious, would you? Madness. Oh, a gun would be good. Yes, you just put the gun to your forehead and pull the trigger. So they're all there, and I don't know. I wrote my notes that there's something about this scene involving the sight gags, the makeup effects, and the sounds of moon in the background all together at once. I don't know. It's, again, funny stuff. 
I like that the businessman from the train he killed is rightfully furious. Yes. Like he's like you. You made my wife a widow. You you took Talk my, my kid's father away right, from them. Right, right. But then the the two people that he killed on the way to the party are just like very polite British people. Like oh you know you killed <laughs> us whatever. That's right. Uh, he gets a variety. So then David transforms into the werewolf once again, and in the theater he's transforming, and then he comes out and. Kills a few more people. Yeah, the the inspector that's like on the case that we only see a few times in the movie. He gets his head taken off, and then a bunch of other people, and he's terrorizing the streets, killing everyone in its way. And it's it's a you know what? There's there's one scene we skipped. I wanted to talk about because both times now I've seen this movie, I really yeah, love shoot, this because it. it's because it's a nothing scene. It's a scene that you shouldn't care anything about at all. But it's the scene where. David calls his family. Oh, okay. Let's talk about and it. And he just he just gets to talk to his sister and nobody's there. And it's you know there's nobody on the other line. It's just David Naughton, the actor, acting right. into a telephone. Right. But the conversation is so good. Like he he starts off very frantic and almost angry at his sister. Like, what do you mean you're alone? You're <laughs> not supposed to be alone. And then he gets kind of resentful, like my parents wouldn't let me alone when I was your age. But then it quickly becomes very like, look, you have to tell mom and dad I love them and you have to stop fighting with your brother and I know that's going to be hard but it's just it's so heart-wrenching this conversation that he's having with his little sister that like he's not even having it's just like I said it's just the actor acting with a telephone in his hand but oh it's the the conversation as it is written like I said with the stuff with Jack whenever he tells uh, David that he has to kill himself it's just so natural and then David not in the actor just impeccably delivers these lines. I love that scene and it's it's just a nothing scene in this movie, but I love it so much because it's it's perfectly done. No, that's great. Um I mean, I just uh, I I think David Norton doesn't get the credit he deserves in this movie. Um and I think for stuff like that, little things that mm-hmm. that definitely just add to the reason that we all collectively remember this movie. You know, I think Norton plays a big part of that. I mean, we we have our laughs about him being naked through the most of the film and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, he everything we talked about in the transformation scene, this the way he shows up and just makes it all in the the he it he all this he, the selling everything in his movements. Uh, like he's just an all around great actor. That's the way he's just yeah. portraying himself and selling the effects. It's he's great at what he does, and I don't think yeah. He gets to go the back credit. to the transformation, to go back to the transformation yeah, sure. sequence real fast. Like it would have been so easy to just say these effects are amazing. David Naughton doesn't have to do anything in that scene because we're going to remember how good the transformation looks. But he rounds out that scene with that delivering of his performance. And I'll he be honest, like it. I think there are moments in this movie where David Naughton overacts a bit. Uh, uh, oh, absolutely. He ain't perfect. But I mean, when he's when he's on, when and whenever he has to deliver a real gut punch of a scene in this movie, he does it a right. million percent. And that's my like point. he is yes. there. Yeah. Cause yeah, you're right. He's not perfect in every scene. He doesn't. He does go a little too much in some scenes, for sure. Uh, absolutely. Like even the scene we just, we just talked about the park when he wakes up in the cage. Like I think that scene's yeah. a bit much. But you know, we still laugh. Um, 
and yeah, this 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 quick pace sequence, because again, it's 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 hard to keep the effects, you know, for an extended amount of time. Like even ten seconds was a ten a ten second shot was just asking too much back then. But anyway, um, David's eventually cornered in an alleyway, and Alex arrives, and we get this beautiful scene with, with her just expressing her heart to David and just asking him to just calm down and, and you know, everything's going to be okay. And then, of course, it's tragic. He lunges at her, and that's when he's shot to death. thing we know it's like the scene in the beginning he's human and he's sitting there with bull holes and he's dead and um it all just happens so fast you know literally she ex- expresses her love towards him he's understanding her and we see that and then just he lunges and is shot dead and i think he knows what's happening and he intentionally does the lunging so he gets shot it's it's kind of a it's just a tragic ending to to this uh love these this, this these two lovebirds here and um and i'm being serious too it is very tragic and i do uh, it I am, is I, and it's ambiguous enough it. yeah it's ambiguous enough that like you could buy that she gets through to him on some level and so he lunges so that he can kill himself right. or you could believe that like no it doesn't and he just tries to kill her and they shoot him down and and it's tragic because she couldn't reach out to him but no matter which way you read it it's still a tragic ending yeah and then like that he's human she cries we cut the end credits <laughs> and we get a different variation yeah, it's of a blue very moon. Yeah, it's a very, uh, very just in-your-face ending. The movie just ends when it's over, which I think is a throwback to the original Wolfman and a lot of the original 
universal horror movies, they pretty much, if you watch any of them, they are a tight, like, 60 to 70 minutes. And when the movie's over, it's over. Like, there's no epilogues. There's no, there's no, oh, and this is what's going on with these characters. Once the peril is done, the movie ends. The end. Yeah, I just did a double feature the other other, uh, couple weeks ago for uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And, yeah. Oh, both of those are excellent. Yeah, I think Bride is one of the absolute best of those movies. Uh, I I think it's the best. And it's actually going to be our Halloween film this year so i can't wait oh great can't wait to do that so and like i said it this this baby is over that is that meanwhile we can get to our categories here uh let's talk a little more about the film in the form of trivial pursuit it's funny little things used to mean so much to shelly i used to think they were kind of trivial believe me nothing is trivial the two-minute transformation sequence, where Kessler strips down before agonizingly transforming into a werewolf, is still considered one of the best in cinematic history in terms of practical effects. Much of the scene was filmed with David Norton in a hole underneath the set's elevated floor with only his head and arms sticking out. The sequence took months to plan and a week to shoot, relying on old-school special effects that are rarely used these days. Along with the teeth, prosthetics, and fur, Naughton was fitted with glass contact lenses. In fact, the actor routinely spent up to five hours a day in the makeup chair. I did a panel with John Landis and Rick Baker, and they said, Man, stop making it sound like it was torture. Says Naughton with a laugh. I said, It didn't happen to you guys. You guys were talking while I was on the floor wondering if I was still if I was gonna get out of there today. David Naughton said the transformation sequence took six days to complete. Roughly 10 hours a day spent on applying the makeup, 5 hours on set, about 3 hours of makeup removal. Because the makeup took so long to remove and reply, there was only enough time for one setup a day. Rick Baker estimated that about a half an hour of footage was shot through the entire week. The snout protrusion was the last shot to be filmed, and it did not include Naughton, but instead an animatronic head. In fact, it was the last shot of the production and was conducted after the rap party had been held and the cast and crew started going home. Baker found that to be a little anticlimactic. The werewolf was originally supposed to be shown only in sparse and quick cuts. For that reason, Baker intentionally sculpted it with a fixed expression. That's one reason he sculpted it with an extreme kind of expression to begin with. I was worried that if we relied totally on the mechanism to make the expression, that they would use a part when it wasn't really making an expression. You know, we'd shoot something, but they'd cut it before or after when it was emoting, so I thought it was going to be this long, let's make it look scary, no matter even if we're not pulling any cables or doing anything. What Baker had not foreseen was that Landis would be satisfied with the werewolf that he decided to show the creature far more than originally intended. I became enamored of Rick's work, so I showed it too much. I still think when I see the movie, you see it too much. My favorite shot in the picture is the guy in the tube when he collapses on the escalator and looks down, and the wolf enters that, like, from the bottom of the escalator. That's my favorite shot, mine too, because it looks so fucking big. Like, what is that, you know? And you don't really see it, but you see it. I like that. In an interview with Mick Garris on Take One, John Landis stated that in a preview, he included the scene in which you saw more of how the three bums in the junkyard were killed. People reacted so strongly and loudly for the rest of the picture that we were afraid that people would miss some of the key plot points at the end of the film. He added that he felt it was a totally bad idea because it might be it might have made the movie stand out more. 
yes. Despite the movie about being a man who becomes a werewolf, David doesn't become a werewolf until 59 minutes into the movie. The body count was 9. Due to the controversial lack of recognition for the Elephant Man, makeup and industry technological contributions became recognized by the Academy Awards in 1981. Makeup artist Rick Baker was the first to receive an Oscar in the new category. William Tuttle was the first makeup effects artist to receive an honorary Oscar for his work on Seven Faces of Dr. Lau from 1964. At 31, Baker was also the youngest person to win the award, a record that was later tied by Tammy Lane for the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Which is funny, because the other person that year who won the Academy Award, her partner, is... Howard Berger, who we've had on the podcast multiple times in the past. So, yes, Rick Baker claimed to have been disappointed by the amount of time spent shooting the face-changing shot for the transformation after having spent months working on the mechanism. John Landis only required one take lasting about seven seconds. Baker felt he had wasted his time until seeing the film with an audience that applauded during that one seven-second shot. David Naughton was reportedly cast because John Landis had seen him in a televised commercial for Dr. Pepper. However, Naughton was later let go by Dr. Pepper because of his nude scenes in this movie. <laughs> it's funny. This is John Landis' personal favorite film of his own filmography. Griffin Dunn stated in 2007 that his biggest fear was that his mother, who was ill at the time, would not be able to handle seeing the film where her son was appeared as a mutilated corpse. When she finally saw it, she was deeply disturbed by it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she was. Only four American work permits were requested by the British government for the production. John Landis, Rick Baker, David Naughton, and Griffin Dunn. The first three work permits were granted by the British government without question, and the British Office of Actors Equity questioned the necessity of a work permit for Dunn, claiming that there were already plenty of young American actors living in Great Britain who could portray the role of Jack. It was only then director and screenwriter Landis threatened to rewrite the script and retitle it in American Werewolf in Paris that the equity office reconsidered the application and granted Dunn his work permit. A sequel later called An American Werewolf in Paris would be made 16 years after the fact. After filming was completed, the whole crew danced in a circle around David Naughton, who was still in his werewolf makeup on the floor singing, I'm a werewolf, you're a werewolf, wouldn't you like to be a werewolf too? As a throwback to his days as a pitchman for the Dr. Pepper commercials, all. The entire film was filmed in sequence, chronological order. John Landis had to avoid filming any full frontal nudity of David Naughton during the transformation scene and dream sequences after Naughton informed Landis that he was not circumcised, even though the role, David Kessler, was written as being Jewish. The episode of The Muppet Show playing on the television set during David's nightmare sequence is Senior Wences, but the portion shown was never shown in the U.S. This is why Americans often assume to it being a fake episode and why Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog are credited. Michael Jackson was so bowled over by this movie, most especially by the makeup and visual effects, he insisted on hiring the, per the responsible personnel for his planned music video, Thriller. When John Landis agreed to direct his first music video by that by um, anybody, rather, he brought on board his foremost werewolf crew, including David Painter, the cinematographer, Elmer Bernstein, the creepy music, Rick Baker, special effects makeup, and his wife, Deborah Nadulman, costume design. David Naughton has said that the hospital bed in the forest scene was the most difficult and painful because of the glass contact lenses used. 
We talked about this in our um, Fight Night episode last month, me and uh, Vern. Because back in the 80s, they were just like, really thick glass lenses that were, like, that blinded you. And it, if they weren't sanded down, then they would just tear apart your eyes. And that actually happened to Amer- Amanda Beers, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, more on that, check out our Fright Night episode. Uh, while John Landis was trying to get this film made, Rick Baker became tired of waiting over eight years and decided to use what he had been planned for this film on the howling. Eventually, Landis called Baker and told him, I have the money, let's make an American Werewolf in London, to which Baker replied that he was already doing a werewolf picture. Landis started yelling at Baker over the phone. Baker decided to leave the howling in the hands of his protege, Rob Bottin, who would only consult on that film, leaving him free to do this one. Reportedly, Rick Baker's initial decision is something for which John Landis has never forgiven him. Baker's ultimate decision to leave this project both because of said call and because the howling designs were becoming too similar to what he reserved for an American Werewolf. More on this incident we talked about, I believe, briefly in our howling episode. So, more on that in that episode, too. Rick Baker and John Landis had several disagreements over the design of the werewolf, what it should be. Baker wanted it to be a two-legged werewolf, saying that he thought a werewolf is being bipedal. Landis wanted the four-legged hound from hell, the werewolves of the howling were depicted as bipedal. So, given the transformation had to be realistic, Baker approached it from a scientific point of view. Humans and wolves are both vertebrates, and mammals as such, most components of their skeletons are homologous to each other. The way I decided to approach the transformation was through complex anatomy. Baker explained to Cineflex, Cinefex, Cinefex, Cineplex. I didn't have a wolf skeleton in my collection, but I had a dog's, and that was close enough. Comparing it to a human, you find that many of the bones are similar, it's just that the portions are different. I made a list of the differences, what the major changes were, whether this got shorter or that got longer, then figured out how we could get get a suit out of this. In the later stages, that made sense. When Jack was killed by the first werewolf, makeup artist Rick Baker told Griffin Dunn to be careful with the wolf's head as it was new and quite delicate. During the first take, Griffin ripped the foam rubber off the head. Rick was so pissed off by this that he considered putting hard teeth in the wolf, but instead used the backup head to beat the crap out of Griffin. It took five hours to add the undead makeup to Griffin, especially for the scene at the end of the porno theater in the Piccadilly Circus, which was simply a puppet. One of the two werewolf films to win an Academy Award for Best Makeup, Rick Baker won both of them, this and 2010's The Wolfman remake. And finally, David Naughton and Griffin Dunn wondered why John Landis never used Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London song, and they still don't know. And I don't know either. Let's take a walk over to the Critics' Corner to see what they all had to say about the film. Alright, so the film has a Rotten Tomato score of 89% based off of 63 reviews with a critical consensus that says terrifying and funny in almost equal measure. John Landis's hard comedy crosses genres while introducing Rick Baker's astounding makeup effects. It's got a meta score of 55 out of 100 based off of 15 reviews. 
Our buddy Ebes gave the film two out of four stars and stated that An American Werewolf in London seems curiously unfinished as if director John Landis spent all of his energy on spectacular set pieces and then didn't want to bother with things like transitions, character development, or an ending. I don't think I th- I think a lot of things went over Roger's head uh, when he watched <laughs> this. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, I, I definitely. Ebert has a lot of interesting takes on some classic movies. He so does. I, I don't. I'm not surprised by that. I respect Ebert as a critic. He's a a brilliant movie critic. But a lot of times, like you'll you'll see him critique a, either a famously loved or famously <laughs> reviled movie, and his a uh, his opinion is almost a little baffling. Yep, that's our boy Ebs. Uh, Kim Newman from Empire Magazine gave the film a four out of five star rating, writing that carnivorous lunar activities rarely come any more entertaining than this. Tom Huddleston from Time Out gave it four out of five and said not just gory, but actually frightening, not just funny, but clever. An An American Werewolf in London has its flaws, but these are outweighed by the film's many mighty strengths. And I, I tend to agree with Tom in this. Um, definitely got flaws, but the, oh, the, yeah. the strengths definitely outweigh it completely tenfold. Um, and you know, it's not the goriest movie in the world. And this is not what the this this ain't that kind of movie. Like I'm all about the mm-hmm. transformation scene, but I'm all about that scene for the effects. I'm not all about you know. I'm not watching it trying to see like the most grotesque shots that you know. Rick Baker can come up with. It's not about that. It's just about state-of-the-art effects from a time when you didn't see stuff like this happen on screen. And you watch that knowing 40 years later in the back of your head that, hey, you can do this with a computer nowadays within 30 minutes. But back then, like this took a lot of time, dedication, a lot of planning. It was just a different beast back then. And, and definitely gets the respect that it deserves like i said they made an academy award category after this movie for the most part so you know um a couple more peter bradshaw from the guardian gave it three out of five and said scary funny is an acquired taste for me it tends to be a recipe in which you can't taste either of the constituent ingredients this i'm sorry the big man to wolf transformation scene is still a marvel so, yeah, pretty much. Dave Kerr from Chicago Reader said it's a failure, less because the odd stylistics, uh, the odd stylistic mix doesn't take, it does from time to time and to strike an effect, then because Landis doesn't bother to put his story into any kind of satisfying shape. Uh, last one, Janet Maslin from New York Times. When the movie backfires, which it finally does, it's because too much grisly footage has been used too lightly. Anyway, that's what they all had to say. Now let's hear about what we had to say in the form of pros and cons. Robin, get me my legal pad. It's pros and cons time. (laughs) All right, so we always kick off pros and cons with the pros, but I'm going to let you go first. What are your pros for this movie? I think we talked about it a lot, especially just in the last 10 minutes or so. But I mean, David Naughton at his best is just delivering a a masterclass level horror performance here. I think he is brilliant whenever he's delivering the emotional impact scenes or displaying how painful that transformation Mm -hmm. sequence is supposed to be. All right. 
Well, how about you know, for, for pros and cons? We just go down everything. All your, what are all your pros? Oh, okay. Uh, so I mean, Jack. I like the Jack character. I think his rapport is phenomenal with David. Uh, I like David's relationship with Alex. The transformation scene. I mean, I don't know what's almost not a pro for this movie. Mm-hmm. I love. We didn't talk about this at all. We talked about the um the transformation sequence, but we didn't talk about when you see him in the third act, just as the werewolf, it looks great. Like it's a creepy ass werewolf effect where he's, he's basically a wolf because there's different versions of the werewolf. There's the bipedal werewolf and there's the quadrupedal werewolf. He's the quadrupedal werewolf, but he has this alien, but not like, not like, you know, Martian alien, more like alien as in just the unknown, but that's what his face is like. He just has this wild, scary face and his, yes, his werewolf form is so frightening. And I, I just think it's great. So yeah, I mean, I, I could just go on and on with the pros for this movie. I think this movie's phenomenal, but yeah, the acting pretty much almost across the board, the transformation sequence, the emotional moments work. The zoo scene is really funny. (laughs) That really kind of, you have all this high level tension going on in this movie. And then the zoo scene in particular placed where it is, is kind of the moment where, you know, you let the air out of the balloon, you let the audience know like, okay, it's, it's okay to let go of your breath and laugh for a little bit. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, everything beginning with, uh, Jack as uh, David's like little, what do you want to call him? Like his mental sidekick, you know, his, um, <laughs> it's almost his Jiminy cricket. He's kind yeah. of his conscience Especially telling him, like, I mean, it's a weird one. It's a weird conscience telling you to kill yourself, but he's doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, Rick Baker's prestigious makeup effects, of course. I can't rant about that enough. Um, that goes without saying. The entire transformation scene, everything done, being done on screen from the effects, a lot of the ad lib gags, such as Jack's Mickey Mouse bit, um, the pacing, which we talked about earlier, um, just, just everything that, um, Malcolm Campbell does to um, just make it not he doesn't take out too much I think 97 minutes is like a a perfect runtime for a film of this caliber just give me a brisk 90 minutes it's all I need for this movie a wham bam thank you ma'am and they do just that and then it's good for a laugh when appropriate you know like I said John Landis you can't fool me but it's 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 got some good comedic gags in this movie whether or not they were intentional that's neither here nor there so and it's kind of like what you said this film is just so good like there are everything's a pro for the most part um but those are my 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 key pros if I were to actually be selling this to somebody those are the ones I would mention so that being said you, you have any cons? So there's two, and I think I'll bring them up probably yeah, again in the next also. segment here, but they're just two little nonsense scenes in this movie that I don't get, and it feels like they're just runtime padding or something, and one of them is whenever David is momentarily locked out of Alex's apartment. <laughs> it goes nowhere. I was watching it's, this earlier going, what the hell is this scene about? Yeah, he just, he's locked out for a minute, then he goes and lets himself in the window and that's it. And maybe that's supposed to be thematic later on of how he lets himself into the werewolf enclosure, but I don't know. It just felt like a a time-wasting scene. 
And then another thing that maybe is thematic, maybe I'm just missing what it's supposed to be letting me know about this character. It's the Nazi werewolf dream. I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't I don't understand it. It's too it's too brutal to be part of the horror comedy aspect, but again, I don't understand what it's supposed to be telling me. So maybe it's on me that I'm missing something that Landis is supposed to be telegraphing to me, but it just seems like the other dreams all kind of work, and that one is so out of place and bizarre. No, that's kind of a good segue into my cons, because like you said, I'm going to bring that same exact scene up, because I, I, I love it for the effects and everything, but you're right. When that scene like that occurs in a film like this, you're just confusing your audience. And for no good reason either. It, it's it's it gets confusing because it makes them wonder what genre they're supposed to be watching, and you don't want to do that. You don't want your people, especially when the film when the scenes like halfway through the movie, you don't want to be confusing your audience halfway through the movie. So mm-hmm. that yeah, um, and it's like I don't even know if this is actually calm when I'm reading that back to myself, but it's so well paced that the ending left me wanting more. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. You know, not too much more, but it ends so abruptly that, I don't know, I was kind of having a good time with it, and, like, it just really, really suddenly ends, and, I don't know, I'm kind of wanting more after that. Maybe not five minutes, but, you know, I could have used an extra scene or so. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it's a petty con, you know, it happens from time to time. But anyway, um, that's pretty much that. So we're going to move on to our next category, and that is Mulligan Moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? If we change one thing about this film, you get a, if you want to call Mulligan on something, what would it be? And for me, I would showcase David's grand transformation scene earlier than the hour mark and showcase more of that award-winning makeup from Rick Baker. That's just a personal thing for me um i don't know that just kind of has a con that just opens up opens up a conversation about the timing of it so we got an hour and a half of the film this transformation scene happens an hour and so roughly two-thirds into the film is when this transformation scene happens and i don't know is it too late in the film or is it just right and I think it's just right, but I see what you're saying because it's so impressive you want to see more of it, so I understand that, but I think the movie keeps you waiting for it long enough that when it happens, you're you're not completely impatient waiting for it, but you've really got the full-on like waiting with bated breath for it to happen. Exactly, and that's kind of where I'm heading in my Malaga moment here, but it's... It's confusing. It's not confusing. It's, it's tricky because, like I said, it's it's... It's a great ending. I love how it ends so abruptly, but then it's just too abruptly. And I don't know. Um, how about you? Do you have a mulligan moment? You know what? Just a very minor one. I would, if I had a chance, I would take out the stuff with the doctor going over to the moors and going to the slaughtered lamb and finding out everything because yeah. that doesn't really seem to pay off. It doesn't much, go anywhere. But I would. But I would replace the minutes the movie spent on those with more of David in the hospital setting up his relationship with Alex because their relationship seems just a bit abrupt. Like it kind of comes almost out of nowhere. I would spend a little bit more time 
showcasing them getting close to each other in the hospital. And if you want to keep the movie at the same length that it is without adding another five or ten minutes on, then cut that stuff with the doctor going out to East Proctor. Yeah, and I, I really should have mentioned something before about that too, because it doesn't go anywhere. It And it yeah. just happens, and for no good reason at all than to maybe... Just pass. It just time. puts the doctor on the inn, so he knows what's going on. But that doesn't really pay doesn't off it pay in the off. end. Exactly. No, you're still gonna have Alex running up and and trying to save him at the end. So I I just don't think that was necessary. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's talk about our favorite moments of the film. Our finger looking good. Finger licking good. <laughs> Duh transformation scene <laughs> obviously uh what else would it be you know it's it's look at the end of the day it's one of the most iconic sequences in modern horror so it 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 changed the way it changed the landscape of horror um it, it did something it elevated sequences from generations ago you know for for this new era and it, it does a great job because prior to this you know Lon Chaney's Wolfman you saw like a little transition from human to werewolf all of a sudden you know it's it's it happens in like a flash and here we're getting down to the nook and cranny everything you know we see bend, bones bending you know, we see we skin stretching everything you can think of that would entail an actual transformation Rick Baker was thinking the exact same thing and he pulled it off. The it transpired on screen and it's it's the film's golden moment, you know. You don't get much better than this scene here, so you so the transformation sequence is the right answer, but it's not going to be my answer okay. because I, I don't know. Maybe because it, to me it feels like a little low-hanging fruit, but I think when I saw this movie for the first time, I knew about the transformation sequence. I knew how good that was going to be. So right. I was waiting for it. It happened. And I was like, oh, that is exactly as good as I've heard it was. <laughs> but for me, I'm going back to that, I'm going back to that stupid phone call scene. Like that sold That's me awesome. on this movie so much, even though it happened so late when I was watching this movie and I was really thinking like, all right, well, what's my score for this going to be? How do I really feel about this movie? When I got to that phone call scene, I was just like, nope, that just did it. That just solidified my score for this movie because I'm so impressed. They put so much dedication into mm -hmm. such a minor scene. So, the transformation sequence is the right answer and I mean you have the best scene in the movie and I I'm more than happy to admit that but for me I was surprised by the telephone scene and just how impressed I was at that but the transformation scene like it's just one of those things like you know it's coming and it's as good as you've heard but I was looking for something that I didn't already know about this movie in advance yeah, man, I I freaking love that you know the fact that you're acknowledging that scene happening and making it your 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 key scene, your favorite. That's awesome. I like getting answers like that, like things you don't expect. <laughs> so that's what I'm here there for. You go, man. To pick to pick the wrong no, answer. No, <laughs> no, you know wrong answers. <laughs> so all right, well then let's talk about our movie MVPs. You know the category, listeners. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased. But I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... Look, my MVP is Griffin Dunn. I, I, I think he is 
the ultimate BFF. Um, he just gets more and more funny as as Jack gets more and more decayed. Um, I, I love that he's just that guy standing there with, with his buddy even in the afterlife, you know. Just He's there to be his form of exposition and his way. He's his guiding light to kill himself <laughs> in, a, in a fucked up way. No, but I just I, I I'm a little biased because like I said at the top of the hour, I love Griffin Dunn, but I, I think he's a great, you know, best buddy to David Nalton's David character and uh I just love the character of Jack. I always have. I just love the whole idea of, you know, you killed your best friend, now he's coming back and pretty much haunting you until something occurs. So I'm glad that they kept it to just Jack and didn't pull the shit that Paris pulls and has like everyone that he killed comes back. Well, they do in this movie, but it's it's it focuses on Jack. So, yeah. And I love Griffin Dunn, like I said numerous times in this episode. So, for all those reasons and then some, he's my MVP of this movie. So, who'd you go with? I went with David Naughton for all the reasons we've explained, all the different acting levels that he gives across this movie. I, he's damn I good. mean, for me, it was yeah, it was never going to be anybody else but him. He's he's the star here, and he carries this movie. And we've talked ad nauseum about why. Right, 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 right. So I guess there's uh, nothing else left than uh, then for us to leave our final effect ratings. How would you rate this one, Miles? In double feature pairings. Yeah, we made a great pair. Uh, so I'll go first. Um, I'm giving this drum roll. No, I'm giving this four and a half stars out of five. Um, it's perfectly paced and it continues the right. Bl- it, it yeah continues the right blend of horror and comedy along with the greatest looking practical effects makeup work. Compliments of Rick Baker. It's a movie that will continue to shine for decades to come. It's a movie that a lot. It, it, most people that I sit down and talk the genre as a whole about, they most people will list this or the howling off as like influences or films that they watched, you know, that got them in the horror. Um, it's definitely an inspirational piece. Um, if anything else, then you know, practical effects makeup. Uh, but it, it literally broke new ground. Um, it, it, it changed the way the academy view these kind of movies um all the performances from david Naughton to, to griffin dunn the pacing all the, the the things that we gloated about for the last 90 minutes you know pretty much goes into my reasoning for this final answer uh my final effect rating rather so yeah four and a half out of five pairing this up though with what else the howling for obvious reasons, they're so similar in effects, um, but they're also so different. Um, the Howling's a much different movie than this, even though that they're both known for their respected transformation scenes. I just have a lot of fun with The Howling and, you know, put these films together and to howl in good time. <laughs> Excuse my <laughs> stupid ass jokes. <laughs> that one just came off the cuff. But no, honestly, four and a half double pairing with the howling. That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. How about you, Stu? 
Uh, I am right behind you on the score. I have this as a 4.25. It's it's one of those things where four and a half maybe feels a a slight bit too high, but four definitely feels too low. So I'll call it a a 4.25. I think it's an impeccable movie. I think it's a classic for a reason. I've Mm -hmm. seen it twice now in the last two, two and a half years, and I've really, really enjoyed it both times. So I think it's fantastic. And for a pairing, yeah, the howling seems... Uh, like an obvious answer, but I was thinking Shaun of the Dead, another London-based okay. horror, yeah. horror comedy that does both the horror and the comedy aspects really well. I think Shaun of the Dead is a bit more of a 50-50 horror comedy where American Werewolf in London is more like 80-20 horror mm-hmm. to comedy, but, you know, they're both uh, England-based, they've both got both aspects, and, you know, you're getting... 1980s sensibilities and 2004 sensibilities so i would pair those together okay well sadly it's that time to put a cork on everything and wrap up our coverage of american werewolf in london a film that you can bet your ass is getting our 100 full film effect seal of approval one down many more to follow if this was your first film effect experience then hopefully it was a good one let us know what you thought by leaving us a quick rating or review on apple spotify facebook leave us an email film effect re- film effect pod at gmail.com or wherever else you listen that allows you to do such wonderful things make sure you're following us on the socials for all of the up the up to the minute news and updates and announcements and all that jazz film effect pod on twitter the film, the film effect podcast everywhere else and before we set sail I've got to say thank you once again to Stu from Stu World Order for doing this episode with me. I had a tremendous time breaking down this John Linda's classic with you, buddy. And, um, yeah, thanks again. Why don't you go ahead and plug away everything you've got coming up to the listeners. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for giving me a reason to watch this movie again, obviously. And just a phenomenal conversation. And so, yeah, the podcast is the Stu World Order podcast where we review random comic book movies with our guests. We will have to have Ed on shortly here. And uh, the website is swoproductions.com where we have new articles every single weekday. Stuff like uh, some original fiction that we write. I review every flavor of Pop-Tarts. We do episode-by-episode breakdowns of a bunch of different TV shows, movie reviews, wrestling talk, pretty much anything you want you can find at swoproductions.com. And that's going to be a wrap on yet another episode of the Film Effect Podcast. And until next time, I'm Ed. My name is Stu. And that's all she wrote for this episode. We'll see everyone next time. Do your thing, Sean. Send it. All right, gang. We're going to see you all again next time when those theater lights go dim and the opening credits begin to roll. Now I'm no longer alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love